Kessler and Abby Anderson and John Maravich to the Lord uh, through amazing events like that. So we did this event, and then we took the hermit crabs back to our apartment in Exeter and put them in the corner of our bedroom, and we didn't make a lot of money, so we didn't turn the heat on until as late as possible in the year. And the, we woke up the next morning, and the hermit crabs appeared to be dead. And we thought about the shame we would have to carry as we went to the pet store where our credit card was on file, where we said we were going to return these hermit crabs in great condition, and they were dead. And we put a hair dryer on the hermit crabs and put it near the heater. And lo and behold, by that afternoon, the hermit crabs had come back to life. The great resurrection of the hermit crabs in 2005. Um, but the idea of the resurrection is more powerful than what I just described. But it is used to describe all types of things in our society that are like returning to life. You might use it to describe a house plant or a football team or the national economy or a marriage. But the, the idea at its core of death turning to life is a very, very powerful idea. And it has its origin in the text we're going to look at today. We are going to close up our series in the Gospel of Mark by reading Mark 16, 1 through 8. And so I would invite you to stand with me as we read this passage. I'm going to read it in the ESV. Mark 16, 1 through 8, and at the end I will say the word of the Lord, and you can say thanks be to God. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So if you have a copy of the scripture, or maybe you have it on your uh, phone or something like that, let, open up to Mark 16, that's where we're living in for the rest of the day, and um, I'm going to make a few observations right out of the text that we just read, and then give close with sort of three reasons why the resurrection of Jesus matters to us today. Um, observation one from this text, okay, is this, that Jesus is buried. Jesus was buried. Um, today we're talking about the resurrected King Jesus, but before he was resurrected, he was crucified, killed, by, killed on a cross, and buried. And last week, Sam walked us through Mark 15, which is the historical account of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus died in our place and for our sin. But the... And, and, uh, this chapter shares about him rising from the dead, but before he rises, he's buried. And if you go back to the end of chapter 15, there's about four verses that describe the account of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, 
who took Jesus' body off the cross and buried it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Most people think that Jesus was buried temporarily in the fam- Joseph of Arimathea's family tomb. He was probably a wealthy person. These were tombs that were only wealthy people could afford this type of burial. But why does it matter? Throughout Jesus' life, he identifies with the humanity that he created. He becomes like you and me in every way, and that goes all the way down to his death and burial. The fact that all of us are going to die and be buried is one of the unifying factors of all humanity and the God we worship identified with us all the way to the grave. If you've ever been to a um, graveside funeral or a burial, it's one of the most sobering and serious experiences you can have as a human. And the God we worship knows exactly what it's like because he was buried as well. So Jesus was buried. Number two, women discover the empty tomb. This is really cool and really powerful. Verses one through three. Look at them with me. I'll read them again. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Jesus is crucified on a Friday. In that late afternoon, he's taken off the cross and buried. The next day was Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath. No one could work. There were very strict regulations. But then on Sunday, when the Sabbath was over, we read that three women go to the, to the tomb to see Jesus' body. It would be like similar, um, they were paying their respects to him, similar to how you might go and put um, flowers on the grave of a loved one. And while they're walking to the tomb, they mention that there's a stone that's been rolled in front of the, the tomb, which was a common practice to keep animals from getting into that tomb and desecrating the dead bodies. But the discussion of the stone shows that the same women who were were at the empty tomb were were also part of the burial, like they had seen Jesus' burial. And the fact that women discover the empty tomb is another place among many where the Bible validates, uplifts, and empowers women and also points to the historicity of this account. At that time, in Jewish culture, women would have been considered second-class citizens at best. Women were excluded from most aspects of synagogue, temple, church worship. Women weren't permitted to touch the actual copies of the scriptures because they were thought, thought to defile them. Women most likely could not give a testimony in a court of law. If these gospel accounts were made up Later, by people looking to create a messianic leader out of a still-dead and in-the-ground Jesus, they never would have put women at the centerpiece of the story. Mark already referenced Joseph of Arimathea in the burial. He might as well just have, if he was making it up, he might as well just have had Joseph of Arimathea discover the body, because he's much more prominent. Sadly, for much of human history, women have been mistreated, denigrated, But here we see them lifted up, valued, and they become the linchpin of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is buried. Women discover the tomb. Three, Jesus is alive. Captain Obvious, but this is the best point, probably. An angel stands in the tomb that once held Jesus' body and in verse 6 says these amazing words. 
you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Amazing words. Uh, as our oldest boys were growing up in our house on Easter morning, we would frequently say, Jesus is alive. Yay! That was like what we would say on Easter morning. And in essence, that's sort of what the angel is saying to these women. Jesus is the king who died. He was the king that was buried, but he doesn't stay dead. He doesn't stay buried. He comes back to life. And it's not just in like a spiritual or a metaphorical way where he lives on in our memories. No, he has a body. In the accounts of the resurrection, we see him eating food. We see him touching and embracing people. We see him doing normal human activities. But we also see that his body is different in some ways because he's the first to be given a newly resurrected or a glorified body. The theologian N.T. Wright, he says this about Jesus' resurrection body. Indeed, he, Jesus, appears as a human being with a body that in some ways is quite normal and can be mistaken for a gardener or a fellow traveler on the road. Yet the stories also contain definite signs that his body has been transformed. As we'll talk about in a minute, Jesus' bodily resurrection foreshadows our own bodily resurrections. And in his coming back to life, the living Jesus continues to pursue relationship with people mentioned in this chapter. He pursues relationship with the, with the women who go to the tomb. He talks about the angel references Peter. And he continues to pursue a relationship with people like you and me. And even though Jesus is alive... The women, oddly enough, are still scared. Like verse 8 is an interesting verse to end this thing. It says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If Jesus is alive, why are these women still scared? See, even if though Jesus is alive, these women still live in a confusing and broken world, and they don't fully understand the implications of the resurrection. Sounds a little like me and you, doesn't it? Because I, even, like, I would love to present myself as, like, a great leader, someone that has it all together, but this description of these women, trembling, bewildered, and afraid to say anything to anyone about the risen Jesus, that is often an accurate picture of my faith. But the fear of these women didn't change the fact that Jesus was alive. And my own fear or insecurities or lack of faith doesn't change the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus was buried. Women discover the tomb. Jesus is alive. Fourth observation is a comment on biblical accuracy. See, we finished reading in verse 8, but if you have a copy of the Bible, I think it's probably in, a, in, a, um, in the app as well. There's like this curious note. There's actually 11 more verses to the chapter, and there's this curious note in the scriptures. It says this after verse 8. It's in your Bible. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. That's weird. That's kind of weird, right? And there is debate about the accuracy of these final verses of Mark. It's worth noting there's three other gospel accounts, Matthew, Luke, and John, that have a lot of other post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to Mary Magdalene, to the disciples, to other people. That are Some of them are listed in Mark 16, 9 through 20. I did some quick research on, the, on this this week. I, I, I have not done incredible amounts of research, but there, it, it is some of the earliest manuscripts have 
verses 9 through 20, and some don't. But here's what I make of it. It actually gives me confidence in the vast majority of the Bible. Because similar to the women discovering Jesus' tomb, if the authors of the Bible were making this up, why would, they, why would anyone possibly put this in a text? Unless it probably is, we don't really know, so we're just going to put this in here. Like, it's like the people compiling the Bible, like, we have really good historical textual data on the vast majority of the Bible. There's some manuscripts that don't have verses 9 through 20, so we're just going to say not every manuscript has it. It suggests that that's the true case and that the rest of the Bible is true because you wouldn't probably just like make it up. So Jesus is buried. Women discover the tomb. Jesus is alive. There's this interesting note on biblical accuracy. But for the rest of our time, I want to I talk about three implications for us about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. Why does it matter? A lot of, a lot of reasons that the resurrection of Jesus matters. But let's just talk about three. Number one, we can trust Jesus. We can trust Jesus. Seven different times during the course of his life, Jesus predicted that he would die and come back to life. Sam, a few weeks ago, preached on uh, one, of those, one of those instances. It's in Mark 8, 31. We read this. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise. In his resurrection, Jesus proved himself true and trustworthy. Have you ever had a friend that's always telling you they'll do something and they never come through? If that friend is me, we can just talk about that later, okay? But if you, have you ever had a friend that's telling you that? Have you ever heard a politician make promises and you feel very skeptical that they will fulfill them? Have you ever found yourself not trusting a parent, a boss, or a friend? You guys, Jesus is not that friend. He's not that politician. He's not that boss or parent. He is faithful because he made the hardest promise someone could possibly make that he would die and come back to life, and then he delivered. And because he delivered on that promise, we can trust him when he says other things. Look back with me at one of the things the angel says to the women. Mark 16, verse 7. The angel says this. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus is alive again. Just as he told you. He's trustworthy. So when Jesus says, never will I leave you or forsake you, we can trust him. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, we can trust him. We can read the things that Jesus says, and we can know what will happen, just as he told us, because he made the hardest prediction that he would come back to life, and he did. Jesus is trustworthy. Number two, this is similar to a point we made earlier, but we worship a living God who offers us life. We worship a living God who offers us life. We said it earlier, Jesus is alive. Yay, he's alive. This means we can have an ongoing relationship with him because he's alive. It's hard to have a relationship with a dead person and Jesus is not dead. 
When he was resurrected, his physical body came back to life. As we talked about, he ate food, he spent time with friends. Then he was taken up into heaven about 40 days later, and he continues to reign with God the Father over the world that, that he created. And the resurrection of Jesus' physical body foreshadows our future resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus said this before he was crucified, John 14, 19. This is a great statement that Jesus makes. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. That's a good verse to memorize. That's like not one of the most famous things that Jesus said, but it's great. Because I live, you also will live. Because Jesus lives, we will live. The Apostle Paul then sort of carries on this discussion in, in the best essay ever written about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to like dig into the resurrection, just go read that chapter. You won't understand all of it, but it's awesome. It's so good. Get into it. Have a meeting with Sam. He'll explain all of it to you. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is resurrected first, and, and if we believe in him, we will follow him. So that's why Paul uses this term, first fruits. It's an agricultural term, okay? Uh, it's describing initial fruit that comes from a harvest that promises a larger harvest to come. So Jesus lives, and those of us who love him, we will live as well. Now, I think it's worth very quickly, I just want to talk briefly about what type of eternal life is promised to us as followers of Christ. Because heaven is a beautiful concept, but it's sort of abstract. And it's a little bit like removed from this earth. Like I remember as a child, always asking my mom, who's visiting here in our church today, great to have you here, mom, but I, I remember always asking her like, is there going to be basketball in heaven? Because I always was like, well, I think if there's going to be basketball, someone's going to have to lose, and then that doesn't feel like heaven. And maybe I'm like, if there's not basketball, I don't know if I want to go there. Because uh, like heaven is sort of like, sometimes we think heaven is like we're like disembodied souls, like floating around in this vague state of being. I'm not sure that's the biblical vision of heaven. The biblical vision is seems to be that Jesus will one day redeem our physical bodies as part of redeeming this whole earth and creating a new heaven and new earth. It is, a, it is hard to know exactly what that's going to be like, but the resurrected body of Jesus that we see right here in this text and the vision of heaven given in Revelation points to a future where we get to live in perfect communion with God without the confines of sin or the brokenness of this world. Revelation 21 paints one of the best pictures of this. We'll read verse 5, where it says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful, or these words are trustworthy and true. I am making all things new. That's Jesus talking. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. It seems that the new heavens and new earth will resemble this current earth in some way. And just as Jesus had a resurrected body, we will receive resurrected bodies. 
The famous author C.S. Lewis picks up on this. He wrote the Narnia Chronicles famously. The seventh Narnia Chronicle is the last battle. The first sentence of the last chapter of the last battle says this, where he talks about heaven. It says, if one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else. You might be like, uh... I could think of a lot of things I would rather do than go for a run. And if that's what heaven is about, like, I'm not that interested either. But the point that he's making is that in the new heavens and new earth, we'll do some of the things we love to do on this earth, but without the confines of sin and brokenness. And he, he paints this beautiful picture. It's, it's an awesome, read the last battle. It's great. This chapter is amazing about what heaven is going to be like. And we, but we get to do those in full communion with the God that made us and without the confines of our broken world. Jesus is the living, resurrected king, and he offers that life to us. Final thing is that Jesus offers us living hope. I want to finish by reading the verses that Michaela read in our call to worship. She read verses that Jesus' best earthly friend Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says this, I'm reading from the NIV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The resurrection of Jesus offers living hope because it's hope beyond the grave. Most of the things that we hope in or look forward to offer us static or temporary hope or fading hope. What things do you hope in or look forward to? I'm really hoping the Patriots have a great season. Already gone, sorry. <laughs> Faded. Uh, actually, three years ago. But... Um, Maybe, maybe something I'm, I'm really looking forward to Thanksgiving break. Anyone else looking forward to Thanksgiving? Best holiday, great holiday, okay? Get a few days off from work, get to eat a bunch of food on a random Thursday, you know, parades on in the morning, it's awesome, right? Like, but eventually, like I'll have some great memories from Thanksgiving, eventually those memories will fade. It's, it's going to become a fading hope. Other things we hope in, tend to sort of let us down. The money will run dry. The house we love, eventually we won't love it. The things you get for Christmas will be in a landfill or goodwill within five to nine years. You know, things like that. And maybe there are things like you say, well, I, I, I don't put my hope in things. I put my hope in people like my, my family or my friendships. And those are great. Those are certainly better things probably to put your hope in. And as we just talked about, the new heavens and new earth will include things we love, but these physical bodies will decay the death rate is 100%. It's not going down, last I checked. I heard Tim Keller, before he died, uh, talk about death. And he said, we're all going to encounter death. Either we will get sick and die much earlier than we think is fair or right, or we will live a little longer and we'll watch other people get sick or die before we think is fair or right. That is a true statement. And I don't mean it to be depressing because that's why the resurrection of Jesus, we need it. You guys, this life with Jesus is often pretty hard. 
without Jesus, I think it's like a little hopeless. And that's why Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a living hope that extends beyond the grave and into eternity. And the resurrection of Jesus offers us hope on the darkest of days because Jesus himself goes before us into death and burial and he's resurrected, promising that one day we will live eternally with him. You know, um, as I close this, this right now, the idea of resurrection is very personal to me because this Tuesday will mark the two-year anniversary of the death of my father um, after a 10-year battle with dementia. My dad was my hero, is my hero. He was a man who loved God supremely and others sacrificially. And there were, there were very few good things about the slow and painful deterioration of his brain. But the promise of Jesus' resurrection means that his brain will be restored and made new in the presence of the risen Christ. The promise of the resurrection means that our broken and decaying bodies and our broken and decaying world will be remade by the resurrected Christ. My dad loved to talk about something that Jesus said about the resurrection before his resurrection. It was, Jesus, was at another grave, Jesus was at a graveside service for one of his good friends, Lazarus. And, and Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. And as Jesus stood there before he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said this, John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The first sentence of that verse, um, I'm the resurrection and the life, is it's on my dad's tombstone. I'm the resurrection and the life. But it was the final sentence that my dad liked to draw out and ask people where Jesus says, do you believe this? So we've just, fin and we're finishing our series on Mark, where we've talked about the resurrected king for 10 weeks, and I think Jesus, I think it's a valid question for us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this stuff we're talking about here in Mark 16? You know, maybe today's a day where you're like, I'm re I, I want to like put my faith in that. I want to put my hope in that. After, after we pray, after we sing a song, we're going to have some folks up here um, by the chalkboard that, are, that would love to pray with you. But maybe you, maybe you have a situation in your life that tests whether you believe it or not. Um, and I, I love that the resurrected king is standing there saying, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? As we close, I'm going to pray um, sort of a, a longish prayer that is a, it's a liturgy or a prayer from a book of liturgies or prayers called Every Moment Holy. And this is a liturgy of praise for Christ who conquered death. I think we're going to have the words up. If you would like to close your eyes and listen to it, you can. Or if you'd like to read along, it's a little like poetic, but it has powerful words about the resurrected Christ. As I pray, I'd invite the worship team to come on up um, as, as I'm, I'm reading this, and then um, we'll move into singing our closing song at the end of this. This is a liturgy of praise for Christ who conquered death. The powers of darkness sought to swallow you in death's black waters, O Christ. 
But going under that flood, you drank death down like a river. You drank death's reservoir dry. You swallowed death for us, and by that act of willing sacrifice, you pushed death back upon itself, like the last lapping wave at the turning of the tide, that high water mark now fading as death d- death's dominion ebbs out for all time, its power to terrorize God's people forever destroyed by God's own passage through it. Through death, O oh Lord, you gave us life. Death's dark shroud has been rent ragged and pierced through by the first dawning of your resurrection light. And after your return, after the final splintering of that dark night, death will possess no lasting fame. The works of death will win no glory for its name. The grip of death already slips. It cannot slow the steady progress of the resurrection, now advancing, one day to be made visible in the full outworking of its infinite glad implications. The door that led to death has been remade by Christ into the door that opens into everlasting life. We who live in this shadow land of death's last stand await your appearance and command, O Lord. Every longing of our souls, every molecule of our physical bodies is crying out for, yearning for, reaching for, tilting toward the irresistible gravity of your being and your glory. We await your speaking of the word that will roll up death like an old disintegrating soul, bind it with iron bands and cast it into flames. Christ alone will wear the crown. Christ alone is worthy of the name above all names. Every knee will bow and every tongue proclaim the rightness of his coronation. Amen.